This is Fireground Action Photography, episode 43 for September 27th, 2009. On this episode, Ross Benson is back, as well as Al Simmons and Ted Pendergast. We'll talk about extreme fire behavior as well as techniques to use when videotaping incidents. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fireground Action Photography, the podcast produced by and for photographers specializing in emergency services action photography. My name is Craig Derling, and I am returning as your host. We're back in studio today, back in base camp, back on our regular schedule. We're not on a fire today, probably because I had four days off of work in a row, so you know nothing's going to happen. But we have a good crew today with me, as always. Well, not as always, because you weren't here last week, and now he's hiding behind my computer screen. Legendary Southern California photographer based in Burbank, California, Ross Benson. Welcome back, Ross. Hey there, Craig. How are you? I'm doing great. Temperatures are rising. It's been a couple uh, weeks since I've been here. You are correct. Yeah, it has. You went on a cruise, and then well, we had the right. holiday, and then we had the fires. and My kid turned 21, and I <clears throat> thought it was more important, not more important, but as important to be with him to celebrate his big 21. Absolutely. Well, the family comes first. Well, that's good. Congratulations to Matt. Happy birthday to Matt. I will send him your regards. And joining us from across the country, the continental U.S. here from Cambridge, Massachusetts, I believe, is Ted Pendergast. Welcome back, sir. How are you? Good to be back. I'm doing well here in uh, increasingly autumnal New England. Uh, well, wow. I'll be back there in a couple of weeks to document that autumnal change, hopefully. Oh, excellent. Hopefully it won't be too late. Uh, no, it's, it's coming on slow, but, uh, but, uh, the weather's getting colder and it's going to be pretty good, I think. Okay. So you can write uh, with us in studio here again is uh, Al Simmons of firestormvideos.com. Welcome back, Al. Thank you. Glad to be back. And he's chomping at the bit because he knows when I leave for two weeks in the yeah, middle of October. It's a, it's a bad time to be leaving the <laughs> Southland here to go somewhere else. <laughs> I'm going to go back home and all you guys from back home are going to be flying out here to do, get all the fires that, uh, that I'm missing. So. Yeah, we'll we're see. getting we're getting into that season. We thought it getting started into with, holy well, moly. We, yeah, it was a bit, but uh, October here we're going to be slammed. I think. Yeah, yeah the wind driven season is ahead of us. October, November, and was last one was an early early Santa Ana was last week. Yeah, and then those winds died down. Yeah, it wasn't pretty uh, quick. It wasn't a real strong. It was a moderate, uh, weak to moderate. It's uh, funny how now early. listening to the weather guys. They can almost pinpoint it to the hour because they said, you know, red flag warning will go up 2 a.m. and the winds will increase at 2.35. I mean, they, like, know it to a science now. Well, their computers getting, tell them that. They're getting better and better. <laughs> yeah, they really are. And that's what firefighting, you know, out there on the lines, they're using all these uh, different techniques to... Science. Science, exactly. And technology, yeah. You know, the weather guys out there that they know temperature and... Uh, Everything that goes with it, there's tons of terms that I don't know. Um, but, yeah, it's it's now when to do burnouts, when not to do burnouts, when to do backfires, when not to. I mean, wind conditions and everything. It's just What yeah. do you think about that, Al? It just amazed me that uh, nowadays. Well, well, there was a lot of new technology, but uh, with the conditions we're experiencing with the 10 years of drought, the fire still wins, at least for the first few days. You know, well, or until the weather changes a little bit. Look at the station fire. It, it didn't change until the weather changed. Right. Over 160,000 acres now. 98% containment as of this morning on that. And, right. you know, but and that was not a wind-driven fire. And then when the wind event 
occurred this last week. They hunkered down because I mean that when the winds when the winds were coming in, that could change everything. Yeah, even I, even with all the containment they had. I'm surprised they didn't get some spots across the line someplace, but the wind just wasn't wasn't strong enough. Probably it was enough to lift the dust and ashes off there and spread it all over the Southland. But uh, yeah, now you know for the people back east, as uh, and everywhere know, else, and everywhere else, Ted. But yeah, everywhere else that's listened to us, we talk about these winds out here. When we're talking winds, we're talking. 30, 40 miles at a minimum sometimes, and they're, they're offshore winds, uh, am I correct? And they're, correct. they're, and they're hot, yeah. hot and dry winds. Right. So yeah, that's, well, that's why, wind. yeah, and it, it, it's a season of the year that how the clouds are forming and how everything's going, how these winds are blowing yeah. hot air, humidity's down into minimum digits, and those are just perfect things for fire. And it's predictable, these Santa Ana winds. But, you know, we have Al here today to talk about some extreme uh, fire behavior he's been observing at the recent wildfires uh, here in Southern California. And I think that kind of leads into it is is the weather conditions will help will create this extreme fire behavior, whether it be the Santa Ana winds, the low uh, humidities. Uh, It doesn't weather. The weather conditions play a big part. Oh, tremendous. Yeah, it may make a tremendous difference in a fire. I mean, look at the 110-degree temperatures we've been having and 4 and 5% humidity readings during the day. Well, you don't need to win when you got conditions like that. you got, you got a fuel and terrain-driven fire, and, boy, it's on its way. That's, that's what all the station fire was, is fuel and terrain-driven. Normal afternoon diurnal winds uh, would help it spread, like on uh, the day I went through Big Tunga Canyon and the next day when it went up through uh, Upper Big T and, and got the two firefighters. Now explain what a diurnal wind is. That's your normal afternoon wind that comes from the same direction, which here is from the south or southwest. It comes from the ocean. Okay, so an onshore. Yeah, as the inland areas heat up, why it, the air rises and it draws air in from the ocean area. So you get an afternoon breeze. You know, yeah. a breeze could be up to 25 miles an hour, which is enough to move a fire. Definitely. So you've got to be half weatherman to, to well, do yeah, the, the yeah. wildland fire thing out here. Exactly. But you have That's a lot of experience from your career having to know right, these conditions yeah. for, for fighting the fire, but now you use that yeah, to go yeah. to and, and videotape the fires. Right. And the firefighters, you know, the incident commanders, they use the weather to predict what they're going to do. And uh, a Santa Ana wind's a stable condition. You know what it's going to do. It's going to start blowing at a certain time. It blows in one direction usually. And when it's done, it's done. So if the weather forecast is, say, three days, which is a normal event, you can figure the fire is going to move for the first two days pretty good. The third day is usually slowing down a little bit, and after that you can start working on it. Now, we hope we're not losing some of the listeners out there because <clears throat> we've spent a month and a half now talking about wildland fire um, as it relates to Southern California. But we're a bunch of us are in Southern California where this show is produced, and that is a big part of our year. It's a big season out here for us. So we want to and – it, and it's we talk about the dangers and the hazards all the time, so we want everybody out there to uh, – to expose them to as much of this information as we can while the season is going on as opposed to after it. Now, as of this morning, off of InsaWeb.com, four of the latest notable fires, the Station Fire, as we mentioned, is over 160,000 acres, 98% containment. The Morris Fire started the same day, I think. Uh, A couple of days earlier. Was it a couple of days earlier? Nearby, that's uh, just under 2,200 acres, but that's 100% contained. La Brea, uh, up in Los Padres National Forest is just under 90,000 with 100% containment. And the Guyberson fire, this recent one, this last week in Ventura County, 
is 17,500 acres with 95% containment. Then we talked about the, the wind event dying down on that one. Early on, it played a big role. Uh, did you get to the Guyberson fire? Yes, I did. And did you see any of this uh, extreme, any any interesting behavior there? For uh, light, flashy fuels, you know, two to three feet high, it was very extreme. Really? The light, flashy fuels, the fire moved fast, but this really moved. And the flame links were longer than I've ever seen before off a of, off of small fuel. And were you there during the day or at night or both? No, I was there uh, daytime, first day, okay. about an hour after it started. And, so what? Uh, I didn't. I stayed up until about sunset and went back. Came out the next day, but the first day, you know, I had twenty-five mile an hour winds on it with a gust, a little higher gust, and it was moving. And and what was ex- extreme? If we're talking extreme fire behavior, was it extreme for the well, fuel you were seeing? You didn't expect that kind of behavior from light flashy fuels, or I didn't expect the flame links and the rapid rate of spread. I mean, I've seen rapid rate of spread, but this was beyond what I've seen in the past. And uh, flame lengths off a two- to three-foot light fuel were 50 to 70 feet. I've never seen anything off a small fuel like that. Jeez. So is- tre- tremendous, uh, tremendous flame lengths. This this is on a, you know going uphill up a slope, which also adds to the height of the fire. But, you know, I didn't expect anything like that. And I think uh, extreme fire behavior is a product of the the weather we've had, for 10 years, the drought conditions, the condition of the fuel, and uh, it's something, I'm not going to say it has never happened before, because it probably has happened, but it hasn't happened in any of our lifetimes. The people that are on the fire lines now, they've never seen fire behavior like this. So one of my questions for you was going to be, is it predictable? But apparently it's not that predictable. If, if it's taken a lot of people by surprise. Yeah, I think if you're used to seeing what you have, what you're experienced with, and then now that the conditions are accumulating every year with the drought conditions we've had for 10 years, everything's getting worse and worse. Each year is worse than the previous year. So the fire behavior now is becoming more extreme than most people have seen. The station fire was another good example of that. I mean, a very good example of it. How so? Uh, just well, just like, like I what I've said, I don't I don't think it was the extreme. They have people haven't seen this extreme fire behavior. And when it got into the timber, which was very dry, I mean the the trees just lit off and crowned much easier than they normally would have. So most of this is a result of this ten year drought. They've never seen fuels ten, this dry. The ten year drought coupled with the weather conditions that they had at the time of the fire. I mean, 110 degrees for four or five days in a row with single digit humidity. So I coupled with all this dead fuel and drought-stricken fuel, why it's uh, designed for disaster. Well, in the station fire, you know, that blew up real quick, and it's over 160,000 acres, and it wasn't a wind-driven fire. So can you imagine if it if we had had wind on that fire? Oh, they would have lost hundreds of homes in La Crescent and La Cunada, maybe thousands. Yeah. If that had come and down listen off to the U.S. Forest, and even up over <clears throat> the Acton side in some of those neighborhoods up there, that's where well, that... On the on the Acton side on Saturday Sunday afternoon, they probably had a thirty to forty mile an hour wind on that. It's just a desert wind, an afternoon wind, then coupled with a with the fire producing its own weather. You know, right. drawing the wind into the fire, increase it more. It was you know, the video I have shows pretty good wind condition. It looks like a Santa Ana wind blowing. The trees are bent way over, and it lasted for about forty five minutes. Wind like that, so it was just a local event. But the rest of the fire, yeah, I don't. Maybe on no, not even coming down through Big T on Saturday, we didn't have that kind of wind. 
but it was phenomenal fire conditions. And this is stuff you've never you've never even observed before. Not not to this extreme, really. And not you got good good video showing. Oh yeah, this behavior that people be able to see. In action, there was there was uh, fuel that was probably six to eight feet tall in some areas. Pretty heavy fuel. The flames coming off of that were uh, easy 150 feet. I mean, the video is towering above the tops of 100 foot eucalyptus trees. And going, Amazing. you know, there's some shots of uh, the eucalyptus trees just igniting instantly, and the house below it igniting within seconds after that. If, if you'd have chosen that house to take refuge in, it would have been a big mistake. Bad choice. And most people would say, "Hey, well, I can go in the house, you know, and survive." That's what they tell us: go in the house, wait till mm-hmm. the fire passes over, and come back out. Not in this case. <laughs> and that's what gets me. A lot of these people um, that have residents up there, most of the, quite a few of the places that are burning are outchacks or, you know, barns and so forth. But people are thinking that, oh, I'm going to stay with my property. You know, I'm going to try to fight this myself. And they don't realize the conditions now are totally different. You know, yeah, previous fires, some of these fires, you can do that in past years. Right. But now they're thinking, oh, I can handle this. But they don't realize. Well, they're going off their own history. They're going, well, I've lived here for 20 years, and it's never happened before. It's, I've right. always been fine. And yeah, then they get caught up in these conditions. Yeah, they've had other fires under different conditions. They're not, they're not anywhere near as extreme or as you know, spectacular as these, and they, they haven't seen it before. Even the firefighters haven't. You know, it's my personal opinion that the extreme fire behavior played a role in the death of the two firefighters because they didn't expect to happen what happened. You know, I know from a personal friend of mine that was up there that say, they thought they were going to save the camp. They saved it every other fire that's been, saved all the other fire forest service stations in the forest, never lost any of them, and this was a different story. So everything was so much more extreme, they just didn't realize what it was going to do. And I'm wondering, as an incident commander um, that got, you know, was involved in this whole thing, because of these different conditions, it's like, You've never done this. I mean, you've never had this challenge before. You, right. It's kind of hard to fight. I mean, what do you bring in? I mean, air support and more troops and so forth. But like you say, the first couple of days of it, you're kind of learning as you go. You know, it's just you can't do much. Yeah, I think things are a lot different. I think last year was a was an indicator of some of the fires they had last year, but this year is, you know, even worse. I've never seen them have to change their game plan so many times throughout incidents as they have this year. Because, I mean, it was ever-changing. The IAP would change every day, going, okay, well, now we have to go take this take this route. We have to take this route. We have to take this route. And you can tell it was a challenge for everybody involved. And really, with the conditions out there that we saw, I'm amazed. You know, it's a tragic, obviously, that the two fire, L.A. County firefighters lost their lives. But uh, it's... Uh, it, it's amazing that that's all that that came out of it, really. And I don't want to get right. political or anything, Al. But do you feel, um, you know? And I did read a little of it. Um, budget cuts. You know, departments can't send as many because some departments are cutting back and so forth. And I, I don't know where I read or saw the other day where they're now looking into, you know, over the whole state. You have some of these budget cuts. Equipment isn't getting there as quick. Uh, things aren't moving, you know, so you're, you've got two battles here. you got this huge fire that's bigger than it's ever been, and then you also have your strike teams that are moving in slower or, or whatever. Do you find? Well, I don't know if that – I don't know how much that part – it probably plays a part some way, but 
the fire is going to do what it wants to do, no matter how many fire engines or firefighters you have there, especially in a wind-driven event. So, you know, you could have a thousand fire engines sitting there, and they're not going to stop the fire. You can't intimidate the fire. <laughs> yeah, this fire, as long as it's wind-driven, it's going to go where it wants to go. The uh, the terrain and fuel-driven, I don't. That might make some difference, but uh, probably not. I mean, look at the station fire; how big it got so quick. You know, it's pretty hard to. And on a on that fire, they didn't use a lot of Type 1 engines for firefighting. Like all the strike teams, mostly are Type 1 engines, Type 1 or Type 3s, but there's a lot more Type 1s for structure protection. They really didn't have that much problem. Type 1s being your typical your, your city, fire engine that you see around yeah, town. Yeah, city engine, right. Yeah. And then a Type 3. Type 3s, some of them are four-wheel drive, not all of them, but they're uh, you know an off-road type vehicle. And Cal Fire <laughs> and Forest Service are Type 3s. Right. Now, you had mentioned in the last last time you were with us, there was a brief conversation about budget cuts and and the state not having funds to pay uh, for some of these resources. And you made a good point that, that these a lot of these larger fires rely on contractors with the dozers, with the, with the logistics support to come in and back them up and provide resources. Those contractors aren't going to be taking IOUs from the state. And from the right. government, I, I guess they solved that problem because they're all there. They're okay, all, I was going to ask you if you had noticed anything missing, or uh, there, was, there was some money that showed up from someplace. You know, I'm not, I don't follow the political arena too much, but somehow or another, it worked for a while. But I know they they came up with a certain figure for a budget for firefighting, and it's probably been used up already. Maybe Arnold sold a jet or something. So I don't know what's going. Yeah, <laughs> paid for a few days of firefighting. But interesting. Well, we'll see what the rest of the season has to bring, huh? I mean, we're going to be dealing with the same conditions, only whatever's coming up is probably going to have the element of wind in it with it now. Yeah, under extreme fire behavior, you do you have a topic here. Is it preventable? Probably the only way it would be preventable would be prescribed burns in areas, you know, to reduce the fuel load. And, and, but otherwise, I don't think it would be pre- preventable. Now, there's talk out there that in Southern California especially – agencies aren't doing enough in the way of prescribed burns. They're almost letting nature take its course, and that's creating but these volatile it's, conditions. It's pretty The brush with these drought conditions year-round is pretty pretty hazardous, so I can see why they might be afraid to step in with some prescribed burns because they don't want to lose one and end right. up... You they know, they like, don't want to be the one to... Like Los Alamos is one of the biggest, you know... Well, recent history where they've uh, prescribed burn, got out of control, and burned, I don't know, 200 homes, something like that, in those Alamos. And, yeah, and you don't want to be the guy to have lit the torch on that one. Well, you remember when you were back on Engine 16, we had the one up on the hill where a guy was doing brush abatement with mm. a weed eater, and all mm. you have to do is hit one rock. That was a spark, and that was in that light grass. Do you remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember, yeah. Yeah, there's Northern we- California, a lot of their fires are started by uh, weed whackers and stuff, people clearing their grass because light, flashy fuel, and there's a lot of grass around. You know, the guy has five acres and all the grass he has to supposed to clear for 200 feet around his house, so they get a lot of fires started that way. Well, look what started the Guyberson fire. Spontaneous yeah. combustion of manure. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah, that can happen. Especially in these temperatures, people don't realize storage of manure in well, your like, garage. Well, like compost piles and yep. things. I mean, that gets incredibly hot inside those. Oh, yeah. You know, you don't stack, you know, dead hay, dry hay on green hay and things like, you know, because that process, decomposition process, creates a lot of heat. You do video, Al. Yes, sir. And that's what you're famous for on the interwebs and uh, 
the firefighting industry as well, firestormvideos.com. Oh, thank you. We, we want to get a, a little technique in here today if we can. We know we, uh, you have somewhere to be this afternoon, so we want to make sure you have some time to talk about technique. You made a, a crack a few minutes ago that I can certainly appreciate is that as you get older and more experienced, your technique gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I don't know why, but. <laughs> did he say that or did she say that? <laughs> oh, I'm yeah, sorry. his wife's not here. Yeah, his wife's not here right now. Uh, but we can appreciate that. We can ap- certainly appreciate that. Um, <laughs> you've done some training videos now, and you've you you're known probably more for your action videos, your your seasonal fire videos. You've been doing how long now? Oh, I started the videos in 1990. 1990. You got a whole so. bunch. So everybody go to firestormvideos.com and look at the uh, different videos. They're very affordable. And if you want to see what wildland fire action is all about and has in store for you, uh, definitely check them out. Everybody, you know, at the station, pitch in and, and split it or something. But uh, you definitely want to check out some of these videos. Uh, what kind of equipment are you using these days? We know you've been looking for a new camera, but what are you using right now? I'm using a Canon HD, HDV. Okay. Now, are you producing all your your videos in HD? Are you keep are you shooting in HD? Are, are I'm you maintaining in HD, that? but presenting them in, in a standard DVD, a standard format because uh, it's too it's too expensive to produce them in HD, and there's not enough people who would now, utilize that yet. Yeah, I'm shooting all my video in HD. All obviously all the raw stuff I, I, I archive in HD, but for YouTube and for the website. I, I use the term dumbing it down, but I'm just lowering the file sizes down for a presentable size for the Internet because HD on the Internet, nobody's going to see it in HD, but it's such a huge file mm-hmm. to download. It's it's almost impossible. I'm just curious, Al. Um, you know, I know a lot of firemen are not tech savvy. Some of them are. Some choose to be. Some of them just like to put a DVD or a VHS tape in the machine. And that's probably, is that also uh, something that plays in your mind that – you know, uh, you want to make things available that most people have now, and it's pretty easy. Yeah, and it's, it's affordability for everybody. A lot of people don't have a Blu-ray player, and and a Blu-ray disc for me to produce on Blu-ray disc cost me about 10 times more than on a regular DVD. So, you know, my price to them would have to be higher, which they may not want to pay. And uh, it's just... When when things settle down and the prices become more affordable, like they have for everything else in the past, it's been new. You know, when it comes out, it's been around for a while. And most yeah, departments that I can do it. Everything's set up for me to do that. All I have to do is just you know make yeah, a master blue. Your, your end product, you have to be able to keep affordable for the people that are going to be buying it. You can right. come out with the most expensive product that's the highest quality, and if nobody can afford to pay that, they're not yeah. going to be able to do that. Yeah, shooting shooting in HD, the quality still when you like it when you downgrade it still is good, better than shooting standard definition. So the product, the end product still looks better on a DVD. I agree. Blu-ray I agree. would look fantastic. I haven't even seen one myself because I haven't produced one. I find even on on YouTube, it looks. I mean, you saw some of it before the show. I thought right. it, the quality is is much better than the regular definition because I have both on there. Yeah. And the HD stuff now, I mean, it just it, it's not to be. You can't match it. Right. You can't yeah. match it. Um, they, now we talked a little bit about, we have a lot of still photographers out there. I'm a still photographer. Ross is a still photographer. I'm getting into video again, but I'm trying, I, I'm doing both doing stills. I might actually, I have a rig now where my video camera is attached to my still camera. So I have to, it's a different mindset. There's different technique between shooting video and shooting stills. I found that when I first attached these two cameras together, 
you know, I, I'm as a still photographer, I'm jerking the camera around. I'm going from one place to another. I'm, I'm moving it real quick to get a focus on something or to meter on something and then reframing the shot and taking the shots and then moving on to the next thing. Well, if you've got a, you do that with video camera, <laughs> you need to sell Dramamine with, you know, with every DVD you sell because you can't do that. It has to flow more because you're dealing with a moving image. And you have to be able to follow the action, pan with the action, but it has to be fluid. You can't jerk around so much. Right. Well, that that was actually a question that I had uh, for Al. Are you generally? Do you find yourself shooting longer? You know, in other words, just letting the camera run and then in post going back and and cutting out the scenes or, or editing the scenes that you want, or are you shooting in in smaller segments? I if there's a lot of action, I usually just leave the camera running, whether it's pointed at the ground, at the sky, or whatever, and then I edit all that out in post because it's just much quicker to get the you see the action moving from place to place, or something happens you don't expect. Because too many times I've just shut the camera off, and then two seconds later, why something happens I wish I'd gotten. Or the other big mistake which I make once in a while, a lot of people do, is if you if you're in the habit of shutting the camera on and off. And something does happen, and you th- you still think the camera is on. You bring it up, and you th- and you think you're shooting, and it's, and it's an exciting moment. You're not paying attention to what's in the viewfinder and the, what's on the screen, and all of a sudden you realize I'm not shooting anything. Yeah, I did that early on when I got this new video camera. Is I was starting stopping a lot, and you kind of in your head you forget which mode you're in. So I, here I am shooting pictures and what I think is video of some great action. And then I look down and, oh, well, that probably would have been a great shot <laughs> yeah, if I had been exactly. recording. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm recording onto, um, onto cards as opposed to tape, so I'm not so limited. I, don't, I can be pretty liberal in how much I record, but I think it's important for video is start early and end late. So you have that buffer you can edit with, right? but also the likelihood of missing something. We both got shots at the station fire of the, the high-tension lines arcing. And I know I wouldn't have gotten that shot if I hadn't have kept rolling and just kind of panned over to the fire. You know, if anybody out there has seen it, talked about it with uh, Joe Brown on the last show. But I wouldn't have gotten that. And that's an unpredictable event. And you got it, too, because you were panning with the action or whatever, and it, and it happened in your shot. Right. Yeah, I, it was kind of just a lucky move for me. I was panning up the side of the slope towards the, t- the uh, transmission towers when it happened. So I just happened to be looking right at it when it happened. And everybody jumped. Everybody jumped. Some people flinched and hit the stop button on their cameras. Yeah, that happens too. (laughs) So we've read. (laughs) It was a pretty loud boom. (laughs) It it was. That was yeah. That was a big boom. Everybody standing right underneath the lines. I thought the next thing is those lines are coming down on top of us, which they didn't. So, so you went heels and elbows, (laughs) running, running, running. But there, I'm I'm learning the hard way because I'm so used to shooting stills that I have to consciously say, oh, there's a video camera attached to this now, so I have to hit record before I start shooting. But I'm even finding with moving action that I'm still, old habits die hard with the still camera because I'm centering to get a focus on whatever the subject is, and then I'm reframing. And you you see that in the video, that kind of jerking around, usually at the beginning of every shot. And uh, and I don't know what I'm going to do about that. But, you know, I've, I've noticed watching other people's videos besides fire videos, a lot of people with video cameras doing their backyard thing, you know, birthday party. It's turn it on, turn it off. I mean, five seconds of whatever and no intro, no, you know, trail off or anything. And it's it's the most annoying to watch 
and you kind of have to do it by, you know, you've been doing it for a while. But like you say, patience. Yeah. You, when you're looking through the viewfinder, you have to have an idea of what you, what the scene you're shooting and how, you know, kind of in your mind about how, you, how you're going to edit it. Although it's not, I'm not thinking exactly, exactly this is what I'm going to do. But, but you have to start off slowly on the subject, you know, fix on it for a while. Then you can pan right or left slowly. You can zoom in or out and then leave some time at the end of the shot. You know, at least I try to leave at least four seconds. So when I start off, I have four seconds at the beginning, four seconds at the end. It doesn't always happen that way, but at least that way I have some some pl- things to play with at the uh, in the editing. Well, and it allows for transition time too, because you you may need that extra couple of seconds for a dissolve or a fade in the video if you happen exactly. to insert that. Yeah, if you have, and you some... want to be fading out of or dissolving out of the the peak action into the next shot and and yeah. miss something. Yeah, or if you yeah if you shut it off too quick, or if you had to have a jittery moment at the end, or something a jerky moment, and then you try to do a dissolve, why then you got a jerky dissolve which doesn't work. So you have to keep going back into the scene to find a still, you know, two still points to uh, get a good clean dissolve. So now we were talking on the it's, the, it's hard. Excuse me, well, it's harder in a wind driven fire trying to hold the camera steady. Really steady is hard. The camera's moving around and all that. So and I don't know. if People that haven't ever been there and looking at the video probably think, what's going on with this guy? He can't hold the camera steady. That's because there's a 70 mile an hour You're wind to stand up. It's pretty hard to hold it steady. Yeah. Well, that come, that almost brings us into audio. Um, you use a shotgun mic uh, with the windscreen on it? or Yes. Yeah. One of those big fuzzy windscreens. Yeah. I mean, you, you have to because if I – and I got one for my little video camera because if I was using the stereo mics on it that don't have any wind protection – I mean, you'd, it'd just be just a roar, a distorted static, roaring. The static intake. roar, sound, yeah, yeah. wouldn't be able to hear anything. And with the shotgun mic, <clears throat> um, it not only cuts out a lot of that environment, that um, ambient sound, but it helps focus on the uh, on the action too. So if you're shooting something, you're more likely to reach out and pick up the voices, the conversation, the the guys yelling, or you know, the crackling of of, of the right. the flames. You're more to pick up that, and less of people standing next to you going, "Wow, did you see that?" Just helps weed that out, but yeah, it's a good point about just trying to stand up. Sorry about oh, the yeah. shaky camera, yeah, um, well, but just, I think it can help lend to the the the, the effect kind of, of it. The drama, yeah, as long as people understand that that's that the wind is what's creating the problem, which pretty times most times is pretty obvious. You know, subtitles. Yeah, sometimes well, I have put in a wind, title saying "windy," "wind," you know, "windy." Yeah, so well, I'm just understand. curious, Al, because right now your camera is a pretty good size camera, and what you're looking at is getting smaller. Um, well, actually, the ones I'm using now are small, handheld. Oh, okay. You know, the shoulder mount cameras are are history now for yeah. me, anyway. But the smaller you get, the harder it is to the hold it steady. Right? Event. Weren't the larger ones easier to with except, some weight to them easier to keep? The smaller still? cameras have the uh, the lens stabilization system, and the bigger cameras cameras don't have that. So, you know, the one the one HD camera I'm looking at getting right now is a shoulder mount camera. It doesn't have that, but I'm concerned about whether I can hold it steady enough. Because the the stabilizer does make a big difference. It takes a lot of moving out, you know, on these smaller cameras. So it's, but not not the real jerky stuff like wind movement, but just a little handheld movement. It takes that out pretty good. And I'm just curious when you're when you're looking through that viewfinder, you, you know, and we've talked about it before. You got conditions around you that can be pretty hero- um, chaotic. I mean, you're you're looking, and I don't know if you keep both eyes open while shooting. Sometimes, most yeah. of the time, I don't. Dude, so you, supposed to, but I don't. It's too hard to do that for me. <laughs> well, I know if you, you know, and and you, 
you think, put yourself behind that viewfinder. I mean, quite a few of our listeners still, you know, look through that viewfinder and it's easy to move it. But on your video, you're staying with it. <clears throat> so you almost have to kind of know what where you're going before you get in there and everything. Oh, yeah. You still got to be very aware of your surroundings. I, I, I keep, even when I do close my left eye because I shoot my, through my right eye, but... Uh... I still open it and look at the surroundings occasionally if I'm shooting a long scene. If I'm shooting something for six, seven, ten seconds, I usually don't. But well, I'm all, also with other people that are, can give you a warning. Like there were several times up on the Guyberson fire, something was happening. There was a firefighter that knew me about 100 feet away from me, and he just yelled you know, my name out and said, get out of the way, watch out. And, so, and a lot of the newer cameras know, have the LCD screens now. Which allow for, it's more of a heads-up display. You don't have to bury yourself in a in a viewfinder. Is the new camera you're looking at you have yeah. a screen or? Yeah, well, the one I have now. But with I with the uh, oh the weather shield that keeps the dust and some of it out and it keeps it from getting wet. It's not real easy to use that. I mean, I can use it, but I'm looking through a piece of plastic and you get right. glare off the sun, and then all of a sudden you can't see the screen right. And so I still prefer using a viewfinder. That's one problem I'm having is finding a, a a rain cover for my little camera. They're not really available they make these generic ones but they're huge they're basically like trash bags yeah that you throw over it so it's it's definitely open to the elements hey ted we we know uh you shot some video a while back of the the church fire have you sh are you shooting any more video is anybody back there shooting more video these days i i haven't um shot any since then primarily because it's the last fire i went to um but it was in uh, what 90 <laughs> it seems like it yeah okay. it was back in may so it's getting ridiculous at this point um <laughs> But uh, I mean, it's, you guys it's, have an open invitation to come out here. You know, I, it. if it wasn't for the wildland fire activity here, we wouldn't be going anything either. That's true. That's true. Uh, but it's it is it's a new it was a new addition to my camera bag just to throw a small video camera in, and I, it's not a great video camera, but I liked what I got out of it and enough to have me kind of looking more at at adding video. In, and, and it's hard. I mean, it's hard for somebody who is a still photographer to say, I'm going to put my still camera down and shoot video for a while because all I can think of is there's a great shot. There's a great still. There's a great still as I'm shooting the video and, like, I need to get yeah. back to my still camera. But that said, I'm seeing more and more incredible video coming out of people. I've seen Al stuff for years. Um, in fact, I think the first time I watched an, an Al Simmons video was – at the uh, Gong Club in Jersey City uh, after dinner is the after dinner entertainment at the uh, at the Gong Club down there and and uh, I mean it's just you, you know you see such great great footage and you think boy that's something I really want to try my hand at and you know the more high def stuff that's coming out now and and it's just I mean it's so immersive it's so it's so amazing even the sound quality with the high def stuff is just it seems that it seems to draw you that much more into the footage that you're watching. So it's something that, uh, that I'm looking forward to doing. That's why I've, I've actually been getting a kick out of, of out of Al uh, the last couple episodes um, that he's been involved in because it's something that is kind of drawing me towards trying more video. Oh, Good. You, Good. you know, Glad Al, to hear it. it's nice to hear what uh, Ted has to say there. And what I find is you've been on both sides. You've been a fireman for many years. You're retired now. And you were doing video back then. But you have an eye of what people want to see. Um, it's funny, we as photojournalists, you know, have, have done that for years and you kind of know where to, what people are looking for. And I have found in your videos, you've had that eye. That's one thing that's real distinctive that you have a photojournalist mind as a fireman. And right, yeah, I try to show the firefighters viewpoint, like what they're right. seeing. I'm trying to be right, you know, right in rather than a, a news viewpoint is usually a little different. 
Yeah. But I'm trying to. But you're able to use your experience to know where to be for the for the best images too. Where to be? Where it's going to be? You're not behind the fire all the time. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's an added benefit for me in the experience of being a firefighter. I know kind of know what to expect. What's going to happen next? I mean, as a structure fire, I can move my way around the structure fire as the action's going on, knowing this is going to happen. That's why everybody clings to gloms onto you. At these fires, yeah, let's go. Where's Al? Following we got to. We have to find out. We have to find out. The only problem with that is I have all their voices on the video too. Yeah. Well, try standing <laughs> next to Mike Meadows at a fire oh, sometime. Tell, yeah. <laughs> he I knows. Know, he know. knows. He apologizes for the f bombs he drops. I know. He gets so excited. Yeah. I'm just curious, Al. We've had already a couple of good fires this year. I mean. How quick are you turning them around? Are you waiting? Because next week there's going to be a hell of a big fire, you know. Or are you doing a seasonal <laughs> seasonal approach on this? Well, I uh, I should have put the Santa Barbara, the Hazelcita fire together quicker. I just finished that just as the station fire started. So I have that one waiting to get out there, and I'm trying to get the station fire together. It's almost finished, so I'm hoping to have that out within the next couple of weeks. So two of them should come out together. It'll have the Hazelcita, the La Brea. Uh, and I think I'm going to put the Guyberson on that same video, and then uh, the station fire will be its own. Yeah, that's whatever significant enough to be months. Its own. Well, I'll have to get those videos when they come out to see how I how to do it right. <laughs> now, did you use a lot of media, uh, music in your videos? Uh, the I mean, the little short ones I do for the for the shows that I present them for. I, I use there's music through all those. They're about six minutes, but not the not the longer ones. Just an introduction and an ending music and. Maybe a couple of scenes where there's some uh, text you need to read or something like that. I'll put music under it. And do you lay down any subtitles or information in, in in the body of the video to help explain what people are seeing? I've started doing that the last two or three so that uh, yeah, people can see without narration. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what's going on if you haven't been there, been to the fire, you know, if you don't really know what's, what you're looking at. Right. What are you using to edit these days? What software? Final Cut Pro. Oh, excuse us. Okay. Right. Now, I'm using iMovie. Well, <laughs> we talked about that. We brought it up before. Um, you know, for people to do their own editing, as you have learned, and you used to have somebody else edit your stuff, you're now doing it all. I mean, from shooting it to editing it to packaging it to shipping it. Yeah, it's kind of a, a, kind of a one-man <laughs> show, I guess. You're, now. you're the artiste and the businessman. Yeah, fortunately, the guy that was editing before, he, he was a friend of mine, so... He said, you shouldn't be paying me to do this. Buy yourself an iMac, and I'll teach you how to use it, and uh, you'll be doing all your own stuff. So that's what happened the last three years, I guess. That's what I started to do. And I know Final Cut's a rather expensive program, but it, it is the it's chosen very nice software. To use. It's very good to use. And it's, uh, is there once a li- you learn it, it's, you know, because I don't produce videos all the time, especially in the wintertime. I may go four or five months without even doing edit yet, any editing. But when I go back to doing it, like well, I know it takes me a few minutes to get back into it and figure out what I'm doing. You have to learn it all over again. Sometimes. Yeah, kind of, but it's, but it's not that hard. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty easy uh, program to work with. And you're on the Mac? Yes. Got to use so a Mac. Just like yours right there. Just like mine. And I'm recording the show on mine right now. And you have found um, Mac is... You know, a little better, I know, everybody says when you're doing editing now for Stillwise, you know, all the photographers, quite a few of them use, use Mac. I'm a PC guy, but you're finding for editing and all, Mac is the way to go. And Well, I, I don't have any experience with the PC editing because I never started okay. on that. I just started with a Mac, and that's uh, It seems just great. historically anything graphics-related is is 
people are drawn to the Mac. Whether you do computer graphics or video editing or still editing, it seems that Mac just handles that better. Um, yeah. But I've, I've had that experience with mine. It's I do all my video and photo work on the Mac now exclusively. Yeah, if I could afford it, I would go to probably go to Panasonic's P2 system, buy a couple of cameras, a big camera, and one of the small handheld. But then I'd have to relearn some of the editing process because I, I've, some people said it's kind of difficult to work with until you really know how to do it, but there's a lot of people using it. All the big TV networks, everybody's using P2, so I don't know, I but it's, heard of it's it. out of my range for yeah affordability. So it's probably out of everybody else's range, too. Yeah, that's, that's, out, that's out there. And I'm just real curious, Al, um, the adrenaline while shooting brings you back to your being on the line days. I mean... Oh, yeah, there's, it's kind of similar. Not quite the same as pulling a two-and-a-half and, and opening up the nozzle and <laughs> yeah, but the fire down. Having but a, ca- a video camera with you never hasn't stopped you yet from doing that. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, yeah, once in a while I pick up a hose line. <laughs> and and when, you re- when you're editing, does it put you right back? You know, you're, you, you know where you were standing when shooting it, and it, it's just as exciting, maybe not the adrenaline rush, but you're there again. I mean, I've looked at your videos, and it puts you right there. Yeah, well, I, when I'm editing, that's what I'm trying to do is try to edit, you know, to, to make it look like that, like you're right, like you are there, like you're in the middle of it. And some of the some of those scenes at the station fire, I haven't done the Guyberson yet, they should be similar. Some of those scenes at the station fire where we stayed a little too long and we shouldn't have, and I'm trying to relay that to the, the people that are watching to say, like, wow. They shouldn't have been there that long. Yeah, it illustrates <laughs> those points. Why though. did you, they leave earlier? So you're sacrificing yourself <laughs> for the education of others. That's what's kind of spooky now with the, with the fire behavior like it is. I held back a little bit. I heard more a hard, so than other times. Hard lesson with the station fire video. I had three days of video and wanted to put it on YouTube. And they have a 10 minute time limit of videos you can put on YouTube. You know how many passes I had to make through that chipping away? And I mean, I had to be a horrible editor i mean I, I any similar shots were gone i can't believe how it was painful to cut out stuff but oh, i know was, i know exactly what you because you have like three or four shots that are similar and you have to go through and pick the best one and, and you they, love them all yeah they're all good <laughs> they're all so your babies you, you always want to you like to put them all there but they figure well the person watching doesn't want to watch it four times in a row so you just pick the best one yeah how many you know sky crane drops yeah. do you yeah, have I'm to curious, watch when you're doing that is it only you do you make that decision, or do you ask for anybody else to? Do you like this, or do you like this, or is it no, all you? Most of the time, I, I do it myself. Once in a while, I'll I'll, I'll uh, call on Chief Snuggums to come in and take a look at it, but you know, <laughs> she'll give me the final word. No, that's no good, or that's okay, or looks good the way it is. <laughs> well, because God- just to get just to get a, a kind of a layperson's uh, right. viewpoint of it, right. you know, rather than a firefighter's viewpoint of it, see what she thinks. Because they so always clinical. say males are so visual and women are auditory they you know i've heard that line for years you know and but looking at videos i find women are just their eyes are bigger than silver dollars looking at the video well once you start getting your videos on youtube you'll see the comments come in from males females and the like and the reaction from some people because you can have the whole world seeing your videos on YouTube, the whole world sees it. Well, that that's brings up a point because she's seen all my videos. Obviously, my wife's seen all of them. She used to ride with me until 2002. She was scared three times in a row so in almost, a week, and almost she killed her. Yeah, she won't come back, but but she won't go on those again. But she watched some of the stuff while I was editing back just last night, and she was 
astounded at the flame length. She said, look at that. Look at the flames. I've never seen anything like that. Well, oh, well, we, we haven't either. And, that's, and, that's the right. point I'm making. This year is exceptional. Well, we were talking before we went on air that uh, YouTube, Al's going to try to get some stuff on YouTube. But, yeah. So this is a tease, a tease. for everybody that uh, we're going to try to get the, Al to get some YouTube up so people can. Yeah, have. We are now part of Al Simmons' marketing wing. So <laughs> as soon as he's up online, we'll definitely let you know. I'll get Craig to teach me some more technical expertise hey, here and it's how to a, do it, it. It takes a village, Al. <laughs> It That's takes right. a village. Um, <laughs> and it's like, not that we live too far away. Ted, we want to see more video from you. We know Rick has bought a video camera, yeah. and uh, I sent him some pictures. He was asking about that bracket I made up, so he might try the still video thing. So we want to see more videos from you guys back home. Given, given the opportunity and the, and the available targets, it'll happen. But until <laughs> those targets present Get something going in the fireplace. Yeah, there you go. And get the G.I. Joe figures out in front running around with little hoses and stuff. But well, whatever it takes. Work. You know, yeah. we, we talked about, I know we need to wrap it up. Al needs, uh, he has an appointment, and are we doing a hard out, I think? or is he We have a hard out? out, so we're about to wrap it up. Yep. Um, October, besides brush season out here, it's uh, fire prevention month in October, and a lot of departments do What's different that? things. Fire prevention month? Yeah. <laughs> do we want a fire prevention month? No. Anyway. Actually, <laughs> how it started many years ago, the big fire, apparently back in Chicago of 1911, I guess is when uh, Fire Prevention Month started. And some departments do things, uh, but if you look back in your history of fire, that's uh, when insurance companies started to get going and the first fire brigades and so forth. So it's uh, some people might uh, so take check, note of that. And check out for uh, any local events that might be going on in your local fire department. And if you're on Maybe the West Coast. good photo ops. True, and on the West Coast, we know we will have. Yeah, most likely. They're predicting the normal conditions for October, November, which means, you know, Warm and dry, and with oh, it also said uh, several moderate to strong Santa Ana events are what's coming up. So, if that holds true, I, we could be in some real trouble. Actually, some parts so, of the Southland. Now, there's a teaser. <laughs> we'll leave you with that. Thank you, Al, for All coming right, back. You. I'm sure you'll be back again. And your website, of course, is FirestormVideos.com. Correct. And the world can get in touch with you if they uh, should uh, want to through sure. that website. Email. 800 phone number. There you go. It's all there. All right. And, uh, Ted, thank you for joining us. Been in the background a little bit, but I'm sure taking notes the whole time, right? No, absolutely. I got a whole page of notes here. <laughs> hey, maybe I'll see you at the Gong Club sometime. That's one of my favorite haunts. Sounds good, Al. <laughs> there you go. Now you know each other. You're good old buds now. And, Ted, where can people see your work these days? Uh, my website at firstdophotos.com, and uh, I'm on the Twitter as well, twitter.com slash firstdophotos, and my email, firstdophotos at comcast.net. Excellent. Ross A. Benson. Well, I do have Ross A. Benson. Uh, I do have uh, Ross Benson at Gmail, but normally it's Fire Pictures. So you can find my website at uh, Fire Pictures, and uh, my Twitter is twitter slash Fire Pictures. And almost everything is fire pictures. Fire I haven't pictures. changed it yet. I know. I'm right. I'm going Ted speed. I'm going to wrap this up. We're going to get uh, let Al out the, out of the uh, base camp here. Uh, go to firegroundaction.com for everything related to this podcast, as well as my own fire photography. We're on Flickr. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook, and you can get them all through the website firegroundaction.com. That's it for this episode, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Be safe out on those fire lines, and we will see you next time on Fireground Action Photography. <laughs>